Welcome to Navarro Life. I'm Michael Walker. We've got a lot of very important stories for you today. I'll be speaking to an expert about the conflict in Sudan. And then we have um, lots of lots of Tories today saying nonsense things. We've got the government coming out and being very aggressive, very offensive, I think, when it comes to talking about refugees. We've got Suella Bradman looking ridiculous when it comes to the police. And we've got Lee Anderson caught with his pants down. And um, that's going to close the show. Dahlia Gabriel will be joining me throughout the show. How are you doing? I'm currently lamenting my lack of uh, plumbing skills because my washing machine just broke. And I'm like, why do I spend so much time talking nonsense on the internet and not more time learning actually useful skills? <laughs> I've got no idea how long it takes to learn to fix a washing machine. Maybe it probably is relatively doable. I don't want to you know, upset any plumbers in the audience who are saying, oh, you, you, you can't just learn how to fix a washing machine. Um, I'll, I'll have to look up afterwards to see how difficult that is. Or let us know in the comments if you are either uh, 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 someone who has fixed a washing machine without being a plumber or a plumber who knows how complicated it might be. The government's illegal immigration bill is back in Parliament today, where the House of Commons will debate it before sending it to the Lords. In advance of that, government ministers have been out and about ramping up the hate on refugees. The first up was Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick speaking at the right-wing policy exchange think tank. He was less dog whistle, more megaphone. Put simply, excessive, uncontrolled migration threatens to cannibalise the compassion that marks out the British people. And those crossing tend to have completely different lifestyles and values to those in the UK and tend to settle in already hyper-diverse areas, undermining the cultural cohesiveness that binds diverse groups together and makes our proud multi-ethnic democracy so successful. The current numbers of people arriving here illegally surpass any reasonable numbers that the state could be expected to provide for or integrate successfully into our national community. And it is for the most disadvantaged in our society that feel this most acutely. That was only about 50 seconds, wasn't it? And there were just so many points in there that I just thought were either grotesque or completely wrong. So the idea that you can say that migrants, people fleeing persecution are cannibalizing anything is just you know, horrible language to use. These people have completely different lifestyles, he says. Do we know that? Why? Well, why are you assuming these people have completely different lifestyles? And then what seemed most bizarre to me is he's saying they go to hyper-diverse areas and then undermine social cohesion in those places. Like, what evidence do we have of that? I mean, we, we have on this show showed you some examples of social cohesion being threatened by Tory migration policy. That's because what they do is they put hundreds of people in hotels, in seaside areas, which tend to actually not be particularly diverse. So you've got a, a generally white area, often a white working class area, and then you put lots of people in a hotel where they're sort of left doing nothing for ages because they're not allowed to work. So that might cause some, some difficulties within communities. But the idea that migrants moving to already diverse areas is undermining intercommunal, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And then I think the factually wrong thing is him saying we can't possibly be expected to welcome and integrate this many people because there are just so many people coming. Now, what are the numbers coming? 50,000? You know, we're in that region between 50,000 and 100,000. People are saying maybe 60,000 people will cross the channel next year. We don't know yet, right? Or this year, by the end of this year. Germany, 2015, 2016, it accepts and integrates a million refugees. Now, that is a country with a similar population to our own, ever so slightly higher than the UK, but not so high, so much higher that they can accept a million and integrate a million refugees when we can only manage 
60,000 and then we have to throw our toys out of the plan and break international law. So I just think it was, it was so pathetic and it was so not based in fact that it's, I mean, we, we, we've come to see it again and again, but just this idea, I know lots of people have been focusing on the language today, quite right. It's dehumanizing language to talk about vulnerable people fleeing persecution. I just think also this, this idea that the Tories have managed to make it common sense. I think most people sadly will agree with them. You know, we take so many refugees, we can't possibly take any more. We're taking more than our fair share. No, we're not. The simple numbers show that we're not. And there are many countries who have successfully integrated way, way, way more refugees over the past decade. So what is so weak, pathetic, you know, disjointed about our country, which means that we can't do that? I mean, obviously, we, we could if we had a government who wanted to instead of a government who are using migrants to stoke hatred to try and win the next general election. On that issue of language... Um, let's go to a clip by Suella Braverman, who's also been out on the airwaves. And on Sky, she was asked about Robert Jenrick's words. Robert Jenrick, um, he said yesterday that people fleeing from Sudan and others, uh, uncontrolled illegal migration is how he described it. He said that they threatened to cannibalise the UK's compassion, um, essentially calling migrants subhuman. He was saying that they don't adopt our values. I think that the point that the minister is making is that unprecedented and uncontrolled levels of immigration into the United Kingdom are unsustainable and unacceptable. I think that's what the vast majority of British people would say. I think what we are seeing is an unacceptable level of people coming here illegally. Uh, 45,000 people coming here what does he mean? without a right to be we here. We only have a illegally. finite amount of time, uh, Home Secretary. If you can answer my question, what did he mean by not adopting our values? Yeah, people who are coming here illegally are breaking our laws. They are criminals and they don't have a right to be here. That is at odds with our values of upholding the rule of law. So the first thing to say there is these people haven't broken the law, right? International law is that you can seek asylum wherever you want to seek asylum. If you're fleeing persecution, you you get to choose the country you want to go to. There is no there is no international law that says you have to go to the first place um, you arrive in that's a safe country. No, for very good reason, um, the Geneva Convention um, or the Refugee Convention, sorry, allows you to seek asylum wherever you wherever you please, and then it's the responsibility of that country to look at your asylum claim properly. Now, what I found so disgusting about that, dis besides that, besides it being factually incorrect about it being these people being criminals, is how, you know, you, you put migrants just in this horrible catch-22 situation. So you, you can't come here. We have to have these laws criminalizing migrants because they have different values to our own. I say, what's the different value they have to us? Oh, it's that they're criminals. So why are they criminals? Because you introduced this law which criminalizes them. So there, there is no possible way that someone can come to the UK as an asylum seeker if they're not from two or three countries where we have agreements. And even in those countries where we have agreements, very few people are coming, especially in Afghanistan. Um, Ukraine, Hong Kong, more effective. Afghanistan, not so. If you are someone from a country other than those three, the only way you can come here is illegally, which by definition, according to Suella Bravman, means you don't live according to British values. And then she uses them not living according to British values as a reason to criminalize them. So it's just this horrible circular argument, which means that you can't possibly come to Britain as an asylum seeker and she's justifying criminalizing people by saying they're criminals, essentially, which is, I, I just think, grotesque. The government's harsh approach to refugees might be put to the test soon if fighting in Sudan develops into a civil war. Kay Burley asked Suella Bradman how the Tory government would respond. 
This is a developing crisis. People uh, will end up crossing in small boats to the UK from Sudan. What are you going to do with them? Well, again, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to necessarily make that an inevitability. There is a global migration it's an crisis. What are we going to do? If there is a global migration what will you do with crisis. Them? People, our position in Sudan is that we are supporting British nationals, British passport holders. And their it's not dependents. My question, Home Secretary, I'm asking what's happening, what's going to happen to people who turn up, who tip up in Dover on a small boat from Sudan? Well, we, that's why we are passing uh, a new law at the moment to deal with people who come here illegally. No one, there is no good reason for anybody to get into a small boat and cross the channel in uh, search of a life in the United Kingdom. If you are someone who is fleeing Sudan for humanitarian reasons, there are various mechanisms you can use. Uh, the UNHCR is present in the region and they are the right mechanism by which people should apply if they do want to seek asylum in the United Kingdom. Okay. So according to Braverman, Sudanese refugees can apply for asylum in the UK and they can do so via the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. But the problem with what she said, it's completely false. And that's something that the UNHCR confirmed quickly after that interview by posting this on social media. UNHCR wishes to clarify that there is no mechanism through which refugees can approach UNHCR with the intention of seeking asylum in the UK. There is no asylum visa or queue for the UK. So absolutely, this is, you know, this is a UN body. This is not just some tweeter saying everything Braverman said there is essentially a lie, right? She said, well, if we are going to be welcoming to Sudanese people, they just have to go to the UNHCR. And then the UNHCR has to tweet out essentially, don't come to us and ask us to resettle you in the UK because we can't do that because the scheme doesn't exist. Right? So it's just a complete lie. And again, it's a complete lie to push this idea that anyone who comes here by not official means is jumping the queue when there is no queue. She's pretending there's a queue. Dahlia, I mean, we come back to this story a lot because the Tories are talking bullshit about it a lot. But I mean, I think some of the some of the comments we've heard from from Jenrick there and, and Braverman are some of the most despicable ones we've heard to date, I think. This was always where we were going to end up. Uh, beneath all of the sort of technocratic or sort of procedural language that has been used to justify some of the most heinous uh, migration legislation we have ever seen, uh, has beneath that is this assumption and this consistent wink and nudge to this idea that simply put, refugees are lesser than, they're not like us, they're to be feared, they're to be criminalized, they're to be surveilled. You know, no wonder um, they can peddle these ideas of disruption to community cohesion when you have stigmatized this group of people so much that you have caused the British population to feel like they should fear refugees, then of course that's going to create disruption. Um, so, and it becomes, as you've mentioned, this self-fulfilling prophecy where they claim that, you know, these people are different or they have whole different values because they are criminals, but then they force them into that status of criminalization by criminalizing them, by criminalizing movement, by criminalizing being a refugee. And it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling, self-justifying prophecy that, means that the harshness and the cruelty of our immigration system is consistently escalated. You know, when you tighten border controls, you don't actually typically reduce the number of people who move, whether it is, you know, as migrants or as refugees or whatever. 
what you do is you expand the proportion of those people um, of people who move who are classified as quote unquote illegal. Now that is a very convenient fact for you know the Conservative Party for capitalism more broadly because people who live in the shadows, people who live under fear of you know being caught of being criminalized, make a very exploitable and pliable community. They make a very exploitable workforce in particular. They're less likely to dissent. They're less likely to unionize. So really, um, it's it's kind of this horrible mishmash of like, you know, deceit and doublespeak and also the actual political economic thing that is driving this whole kind of this whole uh, the whole tightening of our border controls. But I want to talk about the kind of the idea of, you know, these groups of people are culturally different. They don't align with our values. Not only has that language of dehumanization and othering been behind all of the technocratic and procedural kind of frameworks we've been given for why we have to restrict migration, quote unquote. But it is a consistency that has always existed in British migration legislation. When half a million Jewish refugees fleeing Germany, fleeing Europe in the 1930s were turned down at the British border, it was also because there were claims that this was, you know, a culturally different people, that they won't assimilate, that they don't align with our values, that they are criminal, that they are risky, that they are to be feared. The great irony is, you know, Suella Braverman's father um, was a refugee um, who was part of the East African Protectorate, uh, part of many um, South people of South Asian descent who were moved by the British Empire to East Africa and then had to flee once, you know, um, during an Africa during the Africanization process. And that um, that fact, when those when those communities and the people who had been part of that East African Protectorate had to flee. The um, the legislation in Britain was changed. The immigration legislation in Britain was changed in order to restrict migration from particular countries, namely, you know, countries in Africa, countries in South Asia, countries we would consider, you know, having racialized people to specifically restrict um, to specifically restrict migration from those areas on the basis that they were not culturally similar. To Brits. So beforehand, we'd had this migration system whereby if you were part of the empire of Britain, you could move to Britain following decolonization. That was changed in response to the movement of people like Suella Braverman's father to just apply to people from Australia, Canada, and white people from South Africa. So that's the great irony is that the very justification that Suella Braverman is using in order to restrict the ability of refugees to, to come to this country is the very justification that was used to try and restrict the movement of her own father. And yet, luckily, luckily, you know, it didn't succeed fully. I'm glad that her father was able to seek refuge in this country. But it says a lot that she is trying with everything she can to pull the drawbridge up under her, which, again, goes to show that representation is really just that. It's just representative. It doesn't mean that you have actually better or more you know, expansive policies or policies that actually benefit people from a particular identity group. But to me, the irony of that is just so stark um, and so hypocritical uh, that it's really, really beggars belief. Let's move on to um, what's going on in Sudan. 
The UK government has begun the evacuation of British nationals from Sudan. The first RAF flights took off from a British military base in Cyprus on Tuesday, bound for the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. Evacuees were flown from Khartoum back to Cyprus and from there to London, where the first flight landed on Wednesday. The British military is using a 72-hour ceasefire in Khartoum to remove people and hopes to get eight evacuation flights out of the country by Wednesday night. But there are signs that the ceasefire is crumbling. A hospital in the capital has apparently been shelled and evacuees who have been told to make their own way to the airstrip have reported sniper fire. This is all taking place in the context of fighting which broke out in Sudan last week. So far, hundreds have been killed and thousands injured. The fighting has largely been concentrated on the capital Khartoum in the centre of the country and in the Darfur region to the west. At least 10,000 refugees have fled south into the neighbouring country of South Sudan. A further 20,000 have escaped Darfur into Chad, while hundreds more have travelled north into Egypt and east to Ethiopia. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has warned that Sudan is, quote, on the edge of the abyss and the violence could, quote, engulf the whole region and beyond. But what's caused the fighting? Well, the unrest goes back to the 2019 toppling of Omar al-Bashir, who had been Sudan's dictator for 30 years. Back then in 2019, when popular protest threatened Bashir's regime, his former allies in the army and security forces stepped in to remove him. That led to interim military rule and then a transitional council being set up to transfer the country to democracy. But that transfer never happened because in 2021, there was another military coup, this time without popular support, which deposed the civilian prime minister, Abdallah Hamdok. The key players from then on were this man, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who leads Sudan's military and has been the country's de facto leader since that coup. Burhan had promised to transition Sudan to a civilian government by this April, but that never happened. Until the past two weeks, Burhan had been governing in partnership with this man, General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hemeti. Hemeti is the leader of a paramilitary force known as the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, which was created by President Bashir 20 years ago to crush a rebellion in Darfur. Hamedi would go on to become President Bashir's henchman before turning against him in that 2019 rebellion and coup. Hamedi has served as Burhan's official deputy in Sudan's govern governing council since the 2021 military coup. But these two men now, Burhan and Hamedi, are now in a power struggle over the country's future. And it's that breakdown of their alliance that has led to the violent clashes between the RSF and the military that we're now seeing in Khartoum and elsewhere. Joining me now is Khalid Mustafa Madani, Chair of African Studies at McGill University in Canada. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. And to begin, the, the fighting in Sudan is a result of a power struggle between these two generals, as I've just explained. They had been governing together. What's led, though, to this breakdown of that alliance? What led to the breakdown was really the failure of the, what was called the framework agreement um, that was supposed to return Sudan to the path towards uh, transition to civilian democracy. There were three elements that maybe your um, viewers would not be aware of. In addition to the stipulation that um, the paramilitary militia needed to be integrated into the national army, there were two others I think viewers from your show may be interested in. One of them was the issue of accountability, transitional justice, um, that it was really important that an accountability and transitional uh, justice mechanisms would be put in place to try uh, those involved not only in the Darfur conflict, but uh, those forces that put down 
the protesters in the sit-in in um, the summer of 2019 that killed upwards of 120 people, bodies thrown in the Nile, sexual assaults, uh, a litany of human rights violations um, that was really um, implemented uh, by both uh, the forces of these two generals. So that was one issue that uh, both generals, of course, didn't want to really open up, in addition to the fact that members of the former National Congress Party, the Islamists uh, in prison, many of them, a number of them rather, including Bashir, were indicted by the ICC for war crimes. So the issue of accountability here was bound to be uh, a problem for the generals, particularly on the side of, um, of General Burhan and his allies at the top brass of the military. The other issue had very much to do with the, the deep state that was built by the Islamist authoritarian regime of Umar Bashir, a deep state that essentially commands the, the high uh, kind of the, the largest sectors of the economy, 70 percent uh, of the of the spending of the national budget over the, those three decades went into the military forces. And what the revolutionaries and the pro-democracy activists had really centered on was dismantling these institutions, the economy that, have un, that has undermined not only um, the, the kind of prospect for democracy, but also uh, is really uh, at the root of the deep economic crisis. Uh, these three issues, the issues of integration of the paramilitary mil militia, the issue of dealing with corruption and uh, dismantling the assets that were generated by both Hemeti and uh, Burhan uh, through corruption and through illicit trade and through smuggling of gold and uh, other commodities, including gum arabic and sorghum, some of the most important commodities uh, for Sudan. Um, those are uh, issues that have not always been highlighted in the context of this conflict. And so uh, the framework agreement was about to fail, not only because of the integration, but neither general wanted actually to implement uh, the framework agreement. It was clear on both sides that, uh, for at least for their parts, that they were going to do everything in their power to actually stop this momentum to a, a transition to democracy. And I think it's important to, to highlight that. There is no question what highlighted in the context of these other issues, these contentious issues, what catalyzed the, the, this, this conflict was uh, the issue of integration. And that had to do very much with the uh, shifting in, in the balance of power um, the um, integration, as you probably know, uh, was a source of disagreement because Burhan wanted it uh, to happen quickly in the course of two years. Hemeti wanted it to happen in 10 years. Essentially, he refused. He wanted it, uh, essentially, he wanted autonomy and he wanted uh, um, his oversight to be under the civilian prime minister. In other words, having his own autonomy, his own forces, um, in the hope that he could eventually, believe it or not, uh, become the president uh, of, uh, of Sudan. Um, that was clear to Burhan that from his perspective and his allies, uh, the remnants of the former regime, by the way, um, that they had no other option uh, in terms of securing their power and also wealth, um, except to eliminate Hemeti uh, after uh, two decades of partnering with him, uh, both uh, colluding in terms of the corruption issues and the economy, but also uh, partnering in terms of putting down insurgencies in Darfur, and of course, the hundreds of pro-democracy uh, activists that both of them repressed, detained, and um, assassinated. And so it's very important to understand that that is really central. If you will allow me also to bring the international community into this, the framework agreement also, its failure was also a greatly a result of the short-sightedness, uh, to put it mildly, of the international community, including the UK, 
the um, United States, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, and um, and the United Arab Emirates. They essentially wanted to uh, convince themselves and the Sunni's population that these generals would somehow transform from um, you know military leaders to Democrats almost overnight. Uh, many of us had warned, not only myself, but uh, the majority of Sunni civil society organizations, that um, the notion of actually transforming these generals into Democrats was an impossibility. And the narrowness of the framework agreement in terms of eliminating or excluding, sidelining the resistance committees, that is the young people who actually overthrew the dictatorship, was bound to actually tip the, the balance towards the military. Uh, that's really important. Uh, there were no procedures, no, no benchmarks, sec uh, security sector reform in other African contexts that usually takes about uh, at least two years uh, was uh, uh, given one month to negotiate. Um, um, it was clear that there was no interest in really um, uh, establishing and institutionalizing uh, the kind of institutions uh, needed uh, to actually safeguard this transition to democracy. Um, and the, the result, of course, was it em emboldened um, these two generals that, well, uh, we can actually enter into this conflict without any uh, kind of influence or intervention, real intervention on the part of international actors. Um, and so many of us unfortunately saw this coming, not the severity of the conflict in Khartoum, but there's no Sudanese who's followed Sudan or living in Sudan, uh, frankly, who did not know that the framework agreement was going to ultimately fall apart. In 2019, as far as I understand it, there was, you know, there was there was popular involvement in what was going on. It was sort of popular uprising against Bashir. And then you have sort of the military joining the people, um, as it were, in that situation. Um, now, this to me seems like a struggle within the military. And I suppose my question for you, is there any is there any popular involvement here? Are there are there social forces being pitched against each other, which have broad popular appeal at all? Or is this completely just a intra elite struggle, which, you know, the ordinary people of Sudan don't really have much of a stake in? It's absolutely an intra-elite struggle. Um, I think even designated as a, as, a, as a civil war is not accurate. This does not diminish the severity of the violence, the humanitarian crisis, but the fact of the matter, it is essentially a coup, yet another coup in the history of Sudan, this one within the military establishment itself. Um, you probably have, uh, from the interviews coming out of Sudan, have noticed something puzzling, and that is that the majority of Sudanese uh, refuse to support either party. This is not to say that the majority of Sudanese do not understand that there is, and uh, it's very important that there be a national unified standing army. That was one of the essential goals of the revolution. In fact, all of these items were actually central to the demands of the revolution. No one questions that ultimately a, a country requires a standing army. Uh, but also at the same time, the Sudanese population knows on one part you have Hemeti, the militia leader who committed all these violations and generated his wealth from being essentially a mercenary to outside powers and smuggling gold to the UAE and Russia. But at the same time, on the other side, uh, in terms of Burhan, um, his only support at what we call, uh, it's at the level of, of uh, the top brass of the military, what we call in Sudan, the, the Intelligence and Security Committee, all of whom, whose members, all of whom were appointed by the Omar Bashir and the form National Congress Party. In other words, the only small constituency, or I wouldn't even call it constituency, behind the decision-making, the planning, and the support of Burhan are remnants of the, of the National Congress Party. That explains to you the severity of the conflict and the fact that uh, this general uh, seems to have no consideration for his own population or his country. 
precisely because of the narrowness and lack of popularity. Neither of them have a constituency in Sudanese civil society. And that actually is uh, the real reason that this conflict uh, does not, um, is not perpetuated by civilians, but it also unfortunately explains this kind of um, fight to the death mentality uh, where there is absolutely no concern for the civilian population. And I want to add a fear of the civilian population. Uh, the, the civilian population was unanimous pretty much in terms of the, the goals of the re revolution and participating in the revolution. And I would argue that the, this, this conflict should also be seen as a, a, the threat of the revolution, the threat of the democracy activists that remain in Sudan, by the way, still doing all the work that to, to support uh, the civilians and continue to mobilize with the objective of ma maintaining the momentum believe it or not, of the re revolution and its goals. So a part of this conflict is not only the rivalry between these two generals for power and wealth, it is also um, an understanding on their both their parts that the Sudanese population is so unanimously behind the transition to democracy, full democracy, not uh, civilian-led democracy, and that, of course, threatens them existentially. And I think that that is not something that is, um, you know, I do a lot of interviews about four or five a day, and that is not something that is highlighted. I want to conclude this part of the segment by, by saying that there's a lot of discussion on the part of the international community that there was no option uh, for the, you know, except the framework agreement. That's absolutely not the case. In April 2020, um, the, you know, uh, the resistance committees across um, 14 of 18 states got together over uh, the course of a year and a half and unified a political charter, a constitutional draft that would oversee the country to a civilian democratic, full civilian democratic government with all the stipulations that are required uh, and understood uh, by the international community, which is uh, really important. Uh, that a political charter that took um, months of work and consensus is another threat that was posed uh, to these generals. And unfortunately, I would argue also to members, some members of the international community that thought, that also saw in this transformation, this popular uprising and this consolidation uh, of a, a full civilian democracy as a threat to their own interest in Sudan and in the region. If we're looking at this, we've got the, the people, the masses who you say sort of, well, they want to transition to democracy. And you've got two factions of the military that are fighting to the death. I mean, is the interest of ordinary Sudanese people for just one of them to win as quickly as possible so that then there can be a, a, a dynamic of people versus unified military again? Or or is this an opportunity actually for people to, to try and reduce the power of both of the military factions? I mean, how will we see, I suppose, the masses get involved? Will they get involved? Are they just waiting for this to be over as soon as possible so that the bloodshed can be, can be minimized? Well, that's a really central question. I can tell you two perspectives. One of them is the latter, your last point, and that is to um, wait and um, unfortunately uh, have them um, basically um, erode the power of their own forces. Um, and uh, that would actually embolden and strengthen the option that we're talking about, and that is the Sudanese people and continuing in the momentum of the revolution. That is to uh, have them fight, uh, reach a stalemate, um, um, after which um, there would be a, a resumption of the momentum to uh, to, to, to uh, the, the goals of the revolution. So the idea is that, you know, let them wreck themselves. On the other uh, hand, there is um, also a perspective that is extremely important, and that is that stability comes first. And so if the National Army does have some kind of stability, that would uh, be something that would be a first step. 
The second step would be, and here is really the important aspect of the analysis and the word to get out, and that is the Sudanese understand the importance of, um, you know, of a national standing army and its role in stability, yet they also understand fully that this army has been hijacked by forces of the former regime who have absolutely no intention of transitioning the country to democracy. Um, uh, in, in fact, uh, the intention clearly seems to be, uh, believe it or not, to retor- return to, the, to the, the, the former regime and its institutions, by which, of course, uh, they mean uh, consolidating military rule and their discussion about uh, allowing um, you know, democratic forces in. They've already just said that they represent an insurgency uh, to um, the stability of Sudan and to the national arms. Um, and so from that, the latter perspective, the idea is to, yes, have stability uh, um, if the army does in fact get to stabilize the situation, which is doubtful at the moment, uh, but also keeping in mind, frankly, that the struggle must go on, uh, that, that it's not sufficient to have a, just a, a standing army that wins outright, let's say, but that um, the revolution will continue against a similar kind of dynamics of a regime uh, that uh, the revolution upended and ousted. Uh, and so the struggle goes on. Finally, can you just talk a bit about the humanitarian situation? I suppose people may be trying to get out of Sudan or how people are sort of trying to flee the fighting. And then connected, I've got people in the comments sort of saying, what what can people do to to support the people of Sudan at the moment? Absolutely. The priority is the humanitarian crisis, which is severe. You itemized it and rehearsed it so uh, in detail. Um, I just want to add that it is a question not only now of uh, electricity and water, but the access or the absence or lack of access to, f- to food. There is also a huge uh, shortage of cash. Um, even if you do have the financial kind of um, resources, you're not able to access uh, any financial institutions uh, to actually be able to pay for anything. And prices are being gouged for the buses and transportation that are, t- are taking people to safety, unfortunately. Uh, people are fleeing uh, throughout the country, either to their home regions where it may be safe or, of course, across to the different countries that you mentioned in your introduction. What people can do are, are, are two things. Sudanese themselves, Sudanese Brits, Canadians, Americans, I'm involved with that as well, are raising funds. Uh, we do and we can get money to uh, and funds and access to uh, people we know. And um, I'm not going to uh, I detail them here, but, but um, organizations and people who, who, who can help. Uh, and that is verifiable. And the Sudanese uh, British community in the UK is very, very uh, adept and mobilized in that regard. Another is to put pressure. And here I think it's crucial on the, um, uh, on the host countries to support uh, the United Nations and particularly their humanitarian agencies, such as, such as the UNHCR. They should, it is really at this point inexcusable, if you don't mind me saying, to have uh, the UNHCR absent at the border areas, both helping refugees and displaced persons, but supporting the host government so uh, the, there is a safe passage uh, for refugees uh, and displaced persons as they cross the borders and after they arrive. Uh, the reason I say that that is because the UN and UHCR in particular has done that and does it very quickly in other cases um, in the Ukraine, uh, the case of the Ukraine, in, formerly in Iraq, uh, throughout, the, throughout the world. By this time, um, the support and the pressure is needed to impress upon uh, those donor countries that have influence with the UN and UNHCR uh, to really institutionalize what they uh, know full well is called
called um, you know, action in the context of complex humanitarian emergencies. Uh, they know exactly what to do. They need uh, the pressure of uh, citizens in the UK and elsewhere on their governments to say, listen, you know, um, if you don't want to do anything directly, you need to support the UNHCR and the UN agencies to uh, alleviate the, uh, the, what is happening right now uh, where people are trapped. And people are leaving their homes only as the last option. I can tell you personally, and I can speak for the majority of Sudanese, that no one wants to leave their home. And so there is no option uh, for except to leave uh, for you know, reasons of sheer survival. Let's move on to our next story. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has been out on the airwaves bragging that the government has met its target to recruit 20,000 new police officers. The problem is... That just fills a gap caused by previous Tory cuts. Let's see how that went down on ITV's Good Morning Britain. Tell us whether you've filled the gap in the numbers of police officers that have been lost over the past few years. We're very confident that we are on track to meet our manifesto commitment to have recruited 20,000 new police officers. And we look forward to the announcement to be made later today. Uh, just to correct you, Susanna, we're not filling a gap. We are going, and if we do achieve this target, we will have a record number of police officers ever in the history of policing uh, in England and Wales. So that's higher than any figure uh, that the Labour, previous Labour administrations mm. would have reached. You came to government and there were around 142 thousand police officers in England and Wales. Uh, and in 2022, there were around 142,000 police officers in England and Wales. In the meantime, under your government, the numbers went down to 121,929 in 2017. So when I say you're just filling the gap, you are simply just filling the gap. As I said, we're, we're very confident that we're not... Uh, uh, filling any gaps. We're actually uh, bringing 20, in a new police. generation. You lost 20,000 police officers, Home Secretary. We're confident. Your government. We're, on, we're confident that we're on track to have uh, a record number. So higher than any previous number uh, recorded when it comes to the number of officers uh, working in, in our police. Do you acknowledge that in 2017, under your government, 20,000 police officers were cut from our police forces. What, what I do acknowledge and what I'm here to celebrate is uh, the hard work put in by police chiefs all around the country. Well, I'm sure the we celebrate that. My question was, do you acknowledge by... that under your government, 20,000 police officers were cut? Again, I, I, I'm, I've repeated myself twice already, but I'll say yes. it again. I know, because you're not if answering the question. My target, question was, do you acknowledge that 20,000 police officers were cut? Isn't the if answer we, just yes, Home Secretary? If we meet our target, and we're confident that we're going to, we will have surpassed any number that was on the books uh, even prior to 2010. So that rec represents a record number, higher than the Labour years, higher than previous administrations. So looking at what's happened in the last 10 years is somewhat of an irrelevance. Looking at what's happened in the last 10 years is somewhat of an irrelevance. I cannot believe she thinks she's going to get away with that. We've had a Conservative government for 13 years. I mean, yeah, it was a coalition government for the first five years. But they completely ran every single public institution in the country to the ground. And now they're saying, oh, forget about that. Completely irrelevant. Not we've learned from our mistakes. Look, I wasn't part of that government. I, I, I don't actually think I agree. I mean, obviously, she voted for all these things at the time, right? 
completely irrelevant. What I supported five years ago, what I supported 10 years ago, um, we're now seeing the results of that. Yeah, nothing to do with me though. Please, 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 can you just pretend the last 13 years of austerity didn't happen? And of course, these things matter, right? We see the same situation in, in, in so many of these institutions, which is one, if you degrade them for 10 years, yeah, those are pretty awful 10 years in terms of how the service works. And then what the conservatives do is they think, oh, we've actually run this too far into the ground. We're going to quickly, quickly, quickly try and bring it back to where it was. Now they've done that with the NHS. The NHS has sort of squeezed funding for ages and ages and ages. Then obviously COVID led to it to collapse. And then they flood it with money, essentially. But that doesn't really work because what you have to do to make public services run properly is have long-term plans for them. You can't just say, oh, we're going to cut them for 10 years. Then we're going to magically employ another 20,000 people over a space of five years and everything's going to work out okay. And that's what they've done here. And um, with the police, this poses a particular problem because if you've cut the police by 20,000 and then suddenly you realize, oh, everyone hates us for this. We've got to try and get us back to where we were. Then that means you have to recruit 20,000 people in a very short space of time. And what's going to happen if you try and recruit 20,000 people into the police force? You know, lots of dodgy people want to join the police. You know, some good people want to join the police as well, but lots of dodgy people want to join the police. And you're giving them a lot of power. If you are trying to, in a mad dash, recruit all of these people, then that's going to lead to some obvious problems. That was a concern expressed by former Detective Superintendent Shavnan Chowdhury, who served over 30 years in the Met. Are you confident about the quality of that 20,000, considering this information? Absolutely not. I think that this is a numbers game. This is about quant quantity and not quality of police officers. You only need to look at some of the officers that have either been convicted, those that are subject to charge for serious offences. Look at what happened with the murderer of Sarah Everard. He came into the Metropolitan Police in 2018, despite the fact that he's referred to as the rapist. So you've not, not just got new recruits coming in that are potentially corrupt. You've also got officers that have been sitting within policing for decades that have displayed red flag behaviours who have actually got away with corruption and are still sitting in policing. It's a mountain yeah. to climb. It's a difficult one, right? Because I don't want the Conservative Party to reach their ambition of hiring 20,000 more police officers because to me, even having that as a goal is about saying all of the socioeconomic and health problems that we have caused due to, you know, over 10 years of austerity, instead of actually trying to tackle the root causes of that, because obviously socioeconomic inequality and exploitation has social consequences, instead of trying to actually tackle those root causes, we're just going to try and police it out of existence. So instead of responding with better economic opportunity, with mental health support, with other forms of health support. We're just going to resort to containment, to violence, to surveillance, to, you know, all of these kind of tools of policing that I don't think actually adequately respond to those issues. So to me, the entire idea of expanding policing is about papering over what are socioeconomic and social problems and social consequences of the inequality that we have in our this country today. I think that, you know, the 750 million pounds that has been put into just creating more recruitment adverts for the Met Police would be better put towards solutions of care, towards ensuring that everyone has the material basis to live in dignity and so don't have to, you know, resort to criminal practice in order to make ends meet. So I think that that is really my approach to this whole thing. It's really important to not 
say that the problem of racism and sexism and violence in the police is a consequence of a recent drop in recruitment standards. These have always been problems in the police. What's happening now, they might have gotten slightly worse due to a drop in recruitment standards. But the difference now is that we are, for so many different reasons, more able to come forward and have examples of and be critical of the police in different ways. I do think that it says a lot, however, uh, that attempts to, uh, you know, the people who aren't explicitly and obviously have a record of violence or misogyny or racism or sexism, that those people um, are, you know, are essentially not applying to be police officers. I think it says a lot that, um, you know, they don't want that it's the people who have uh, explicit examples of this in their history um, are the ones that are disproportionately applying to be police officers. And that if you just raise that recruitment threshold a bit more to say, look, if you display forms of racism and sexism that are aberrations within this institutionally racist and sexist uh, construct, then you won't be able to become a police officer. And that means that we're having this massive drop in recruitment. I think that says a lot about how this thing has been functioning this whole time, you know? I think some good. I think a bunch of good people will will, will want to join the police, and a bunch of wrongans will want to join the police as well. I suppose. I suppose where I stand on this, if maybe getting rid of twenty thousand police officers in the twenty tens was actually necessary, but what they should have been doing is weeding out the twenty thousand police officers who were wrongans. Instead, what they did is because their priority was budget cuts. Is I presume you know when a, when a department has budget cuts, what they normally do is they offer everyone early retirement and a redundancy package. And what that does is it it just weeds out people who are easiest to or most willing to leave the service, which is not going to be necessarily the wrong ones. So I, I think a turnover of twenty thousand people in the police in the UK could well have been a good thing, but not when it's done by austerity. We've got a couple more stories to get through, so let's move straight on. Marina Perkis is a political commentator and podcaster famous for her anti-Brexit and anti-Tory views. So when she went head-to-head with Jacob Rees-Mogg on GB News, it was always going to be a fiery one. And it didn't disappoint. The, the head-to-head has already been viewed millions of times on social media. Let's take a look. As I understand it, Marina, you don't think the cultural wars really exist? Do you think they're essentially a, a right-wing... Oh, no, I, um, think, I think they exist because people like you and your party in government, they desperately need them to exist because what else are you going to win the next election on? So um, they're not coming from people who want to pull roads down or want to edit Raoul Dahl. Isn't Mm. there a battle of ideas that is going on that sometimes get expressed in extreme form? So what I think has happened is it's a distraction technique. So don't get me wrong, I think any calls to rewrite Roald Dahl, for example, or to rename a, a street. By the way, the street renaming, if we go into that, it was called Black Boy Lane. You know, that was why they renamed the street. I think that's fair enough. If you had a street named, you know, White Trash, you might want to rename it. But I think what's happening here is you're drawing attention to these things that actually don't impact people's lives. And the reason you're doing that is because otherwise people might just focus on the real grievances in their life which are basically caused by your government. But doesn't no platforming actually affect people's lives because freedom of speech is absolutely essential for the no. political discussion that we're going Jacob, to have? Jacob, do you know what really impacts people's lives? And I really would just ask your viewers just to... You probably dislike me if you know who I am, but just ask you, your viewers to think about what really impacts their life. Is it 
Roald Dahl being rewritten, which, by the way, I don't think it should be. Is it the renaming of a street? Is it, I don't know, some woke policy? Is that really what's harming people? Or is it the concern that they are going to be waiting for an ambulance and dying? Is it the concern but, that their children are getting a poor education? Is it the concern that we've got the highest energy bills but isn't this in the, why, on the planet? But isn't it's so telling how often, I've been on GB News a few times recently, how often these stories about Roald Dahl come up. Like, you, you have literally someone who was a Tory minister for a long period of time, right, until Liz Truss had the most catastrophic end to a premiership in modern history, right? Someone who's in government, who's had the levers of the state at his hands, who was also, you know, pushing forward probably the biggest change to our political economy in the last 30 years, which was leaving the EU. And all he's talking about is Roald Dahl. Like, it's so irrelevant. And I thought Marina Perk has put very well that this does not matter, right? I don't even think GB News viewers particularly think that matters. I think GB News viewers probably do care much more about how long it takes for an ambulance to arrive, but the host on GB News, especially people such as Jacob Rees-Mogg, who are Tory MPs, right? They don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about Roald Dahl. So very well put. Let's look at what happened next in that debate. But isn't this why you should stand up for freedom of speech? Because no. if you attack excuse, freedom of speech in some areas, Jacob. you're then putting the government in control Jacob, of Mr. the agenda. Mr. You're deciding Mr. politicians freedom should. Mr. Freedom of Speech here, did you or did you not vote to stop people protesting if it was annoying? Well, there are limits on protest, but, oh, okay. but, but, but so public free protest speech, so long is, as I'm okay with it. No, public protest is a very important part of freedom of speech, and the laws that have been introduced mm -hmm. are, are to get the balance right between people okay. going about their daily you lives. Me, That's perfectly you reasonable. You tell me how freedom of speech is going to make people's lives better in this country after it's been decimated by things because, like your Brexit. Because it's really important, because it allows you to come on this programme and make your case. Uh, uh, and this that is once you... Sorry, me making my case on this programme, yes, which I'll, never, which I'll never come back on, okay. is, is just so that people understand that this is not going to help them. Freedom of speech is not going to help you pay your bills. It's not going to put food on the table. It's not going to feed your kids. But it allows you to make the argument that you're making. Doesn't matter. Doesn't but that's matter. So fundamentally All I'm important. here to do is to draw attention to the fact that this, what you do... Is, yes, is, but that it, is freedom it, of speech. It's so it's, it's really just, important to defend... People. Marina Perkis didn't need to concede there that freedom of speech doesn't matter. Of course, freedom of speech matters, but it doesn't particularly matter whether or not a company decides to re-edit Roald Dahl to speak to a modern audience, right? But, I mean, you know, let, let's not split hairs here. Um, generally, the point was made very well. Um, the interview went on for a while. They talked a lot about Brexit and inflation. Marina Perkis was right to point out we have higher overall inflation than the rest of Europe. Then Jacob Rees-Mogg um, was correct that Germany has higher food price inflation than we do. It was a real back and forth. You can watch it online. Um, and the end, though, of the debate was pretty funny. So Marina Perkis brings up an article Rees-Mogg wrote with David Frost. In this article, in this article you talked about how anti-woke policies are going to uh, help recover the country. Whiteley's is recovering, right? Your, your guess is as good as mine. Now, how are your anti-woke policies going to help restore the economy, for example? Explain it. Explain well, it. we want supply-side reform. We want the economy to get to higher levels of growth. And this how is your really, anti-woke This is really do important. That. We don't want people distracted Please explain by it. all We've the wokeness. We've got only a small amount of time. Well, as we were discussing earlier, the £140,000, small amount of money in itself, being wasted by the Cabinet Office. That's part of the point. Yeah, but that's Sorry, simply, we're talking about fixing the economy, that, and you've just quoted no, 140,000 I'm talking about things that are symptomatic pounds. of the problems okay. of the I, waste just, again, within, explain to your within viewers, the government. When, when Jacob talks about uh, deregulation, that's a big thing. You're all about deregulation. What Jacob is talking about is scaling back your workers' rights and consumer rights. I'm afraid rights. So, we're going to have to draw this to a 
conclusion, oh, but you're shame. wrong on that because oh, our employment that's... rights all predate the European this Union by and large. In 2011, uh, but unfortunately, we've got to go straight to the weather. We've overrun, but the sun will no doubt be shining in Somerset, um, and it'll be a special, Don't nice weather, weather there. But over, over to the weather, and thank you so much uh, to my guest for joining me this evening. It was a very chaotic ending. I quite liked her sort of pretending to be the host instead of <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, what did you make of that, Dahlia? I love that at one point, Jacob Rees-Mogg was like, we, the reason we talk about wokeness all the time is because we don't want people to be distracted by wokeness. It's like, well, then why don't you just shut up for once in your life and stop going on about this? Um, but I think what really came through in that segment was like the complete flimsiness of the idea of freedom of speech as it exists in the mind of someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, because to him, it's like, well, freedom of speech is the fact that I allow you to come onto this platform, which has unimaginable amounts of money being pumped into it um, to prime the audience, you know, at, to spend hours and hours priming the audience to view you in a particular way, to view your arguments in a particular way. I'm going to give you like nine minutes on that um, to come in in that context and, you know, express your little opinion without arresting you um, or without, you know, de denying your ability to be here. That That is this concept of freedom of speech. There's no complex understanding of like what it means for, you know, the, the media in this country to be owned by so few people? What does it mean for the platforms that we have for so-called speech to be exercised, to be curated and cultivated in such a way? You know, ideas of freedom of speech mean nothing when you don't take into account the question of media platforms and ownership of those media platforms and how that impacts those platforms and how, they, how it shapes the speech that can take, that can, uh, that can take place on it. Uh, and also, it's this very individual idea of freedom of speech and this idea of speech as something that is completely divorced from power. So, like, first of all, collective forms of expression, for example, unionization, protest, etc., campaigning, these are not recognized by someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, as a legitimate form of freedom of expression because it's collective and it's not just about speech, but it's about actually translating speech into power. So there's this idea of we'll allow you to talk all you like, but the minute that talk translates into a form of either collective action or reclamation of power or, you know, assertion of power, that's when we're going to make sure that you are cut off, that you're criminalized, whatever. And that's what obviously the Conservative Party is doing with their um, anti-union legislation and with the uh, public order bills. So I think that that is really what this segment exposed, is, ex is ex exposed that, you know, culture warmongers like Jacob Rees-Mogg, the people who like to talk about freedom of speech, and like conceptualize freedom of speech in the most narrow and anemic ways, because that's what suits their agenda, because they want people to talk and talk, but they don't want anyone other than themselves to actually have power or ownership um, in this country. That's where they cut it off. And so I think that that's, you know, really, um, really to me, what came through in this, in this, um, in this in this uh, segment, that freedom of speech is understood in the most uninteresting uh, and anemic of ways. We could talk about this for a while, but it's coming up to the end of the show and we've got one more clip for you.
Metropolitan Police Commissioner Mark Rowley has appeared before the Home Affairs Select Committee. He was there to answer questions about police priorities in London. That's when Tory party deputy chair Lee Anderson let him know what his priorities are. Just this morning, we've seen protesters on Whitehall around Parliament Square, probably as you was coming into the building. Don't you think it's time that you left the Ivory Tower and got out there on Whitehall and sorted these people out? Because, you know, people of London, the tourists, the, the people that work at this place, and you know, the taxi drivers, the bus drivers, they're getting fed up of it and you're just letting it happen. You've got the powers now to do this. So um, there's current bill bouncing around Parliament, which hasn't come in yet. So those powers aren't in existence yet. Um, it's so not, It's not strictly true, is it? You, get, you can move these people on. They're, they're obstructing the highway. So... We could have a, a long conversation about public order law. No, but, Why are you well, not moving them on? Well, because you're... I don't want a long conversation. You're, you're, making, you're making selective um, comments based on a partial understanding of the law. I do not want Londoners disrupted um, any more than anybody else does. But the law is very clear that protest is disruptive and to a reason and to a certain extent that is allowed. That is what the law says at the moment. Now, you might not like that, but I have to work to the law rather than um, right. rather than whim. Now it is it is right. It's not, Commissioner, but it's not. not so, it's so, so it's, you might want to believe that the law says that no disruption is allowed whatsoever through protest, but that is not the case. I think you might want to believe, Commissioner, that, you, you know, that you're doing your job correctly. And we, I don't think you are. But I'm just going to ask one more question. I'll make one more statement because I, I feel like I'm wasting my time with you, to be honest. Um, you say you took five years out of, yeah. of the force. There's probably people listening to this today wish it was a lot longer, uh, and I'm one of them. Um, do you think you've got the confidence of the public I'm not going to sit here. When, if people want to be personally offensive, then write it in newspapers, but I'm not going to answer those questions. Wow, what an asshole. Um, it's, it's a shame, really, to watch a clip where the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police looks eminently reasonable because we know how many problems um, that service currently has. Um, Dahlia, what did you make of that? My worry is that he's saying the law isn't that we can just stop anyone causing any kind of disruption. And so Lee Anderson is going to go away and say, let's change the law then. Yeah, and that's what the Conservatives are trying to do. And look, it's very important to remember here that authoritarian regimes never explicitly come out and say, we want to silence dissent or we want to stop people from criticising us or expressing their dissent through protest. They never say that. They never say we're trying to establish, you know, an authoritarian regime. They always do it through this language of public order, of public order, of loving the nation, of patriotism. That's always the means through which authoritarian governments achieve authoritarian um, ends. And the way that they do this is by criminalizing both, you know, explicit forms of protest, for example, as we can see in the public order bill and the um, minimum services legislation, this idea of criminalizing particular expressions of dissent, whether it's going on strike or whether it's, you know, disruptive protest, which is obviously part of our, of our democracy. But it's also by criminalizing really mundane behavior. That's also how kind of authoritarian regimes become authoritarian. It's by, you know, criminalizing things like laughing gas and, you know, acting like this is, you know, a scourge um, on, our, on, on our streets. It's by creating moral panics around, you know, young about antisocial behavior and criminalizing things like loitering. This is how authoritarian regimes sharpen their tools. It's always through this language of public order. And what we're seeing with Lee Anderson is just pound shop authoritarianism. It's really boring, 
obvious traditional authoritarianism and the image of seeing, you know, a politician talking, you know, caught, talking to the police and saying to the police, you know, you need to go further in arresting protesters. That's an incredibly worrying juncture that we're at right now. Let's wrap up there. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.